the real stuff that you don't see in a business. So, you know, I, I remember posting a picture going, I'm sat in Minto and I'm crying. I'm, I'm over it. I'm, 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 that's it. And, and people are like, oh, aren't you meant to be showing us trendy, cool pictures of sunnies? And I'm like, no, I'm stuck in Minto outside a mosque behind a massive semi-trailer walked out because our machine's broken and all the experts have said that's it they've had enough and and and, and i just rang josh going with you know with two hundred thousand dollars and we've spent all our life savings can't I'm, I'm giving up That's right. I might have a story for you. For the past few years, I've been coaching my little boy's soccer team. And one of the great things about it is the group of parents. That's how I first came across Nick Robinson. Nick's son, Harry, is on the team. And when Nick told me a few years ago they were going to do a Kickstarter campaign, I chipped in. Little did I know it would be the start of an immense, inspiring journey that would captivate people around the world. But if I'd known Nick better, I probably would have had a hunch. He's won stacks of advertising awards, hosted a show on Triple M that was in the papers every week. He's changed the sunglasses business and he's teaching the next gen of designers over at UTS. He's restless, imaginative, driven, low-key, earnest, a bit jokey, always centre of attention, but always thoughtful and considerate. Obviously driven by purpose, clearly skilled and deliberate about the work of storytelling. He's got a lot of nerve. I've interviewed stacks of people, but looking around, I realized I never asked those kind of questions, inquiring, let's face it, impertinent questions of my friends. So that's what this podcast is about. I'm going to get to know a few people who make great things happen in the world. And, um, you know, this is a really great and rare opportunity to do that. Nick, it is so great to have you as part of this, you know, new thing I'm doing. I'm honored, truly honored. Really, you know, I, yeah, I'm one of those parents that stands on the sideline and watches you teach the kids, and I'm like, yeah, I couldn't do that job. <laughs> but, yeah, nice to be here. So much of your story now is built around your sons and their part in the gestation of this amazing thing that you've done, Good Citizens, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. But before that, I wanted to talk about your childhood and how you know where you started what clues that offers to what you're doing now what what was it like when you were growing up oh look I grew up in England in a little market town it's funny I took the kids back three years ago with Joss my wife and the town crier was there and he welcomed the kids back it's really funny they're like what's that bloke doing with a bell I'm like that's a town crier what's a town crier and this is something that's gone on in my little town of Nairsborough for a long time but you know they announced the news. It's pretty cool. And the kids were just fascinated. But yeah, look, I'm from Nairsborough, a little town. Childhood was a pretty normal childhood. Uh, I was quite an imaginative person. Uh, I would be up to mischief. And I think I was always kind of itching to do new things. And I remember my first job was I knocked on the paper man's door. And I was, I was about nine. And I said, can I have a job? He said, oh, you're a bit young. I said, oh, I'll just do a little local round. And he said he'd give me two pounds. And, and I was kind of excited. Oh, two pounds, that's money I've earned on my own. Two quid. That's brilliant. Anyway, I'd, I went around to a friend's house and his dad had this little transistor radio. There was a brand called Tandy and a little transistor radio. Uh, and it was like a little 
it could transmit something for 150 meters. And I was going, that sounds like a radio station. So I asked his dad if I could borrow it and I blocked out the frequency of Radio 1. So anybody within 150 meters of my parents' house got my radio transmission. Oh my God, that's amazing. And I realized outside my bedroom window, there's like, there's a lot, there's like a 10 minute queue at the traffic lights. So I put a little sign up saying, tune into my radio station. And from my bedroom, I transmitted to all the people outside that were waiting at the traffic lights. And I sold some advertising space to the garden center for their deals and the old people's home up the road, wow, it's which like was a- already full. But the guy went, you're, you're insane, you little rat bag. So I got 20 quid. The youngest ever pirate station Absolutely. in the UK. And that was, it was all happening. I remember in England when I was growing up, there was all these on the North Sea, you know, the, the, the Dutch were coming across with a boat and mooring it and transmitting because it was illegal. But it's kind of, you'll know this, right? You've, you're, you're into this. So yeah, look, I had a pretty normal childhood. And, but that was kind of my first taste of doing things a bit differently. That, you know, like uh, it's normal in a way, but not too many kids would have had the initiative to see that piece, put it together, actually run their show, blog out the BBC. Is, is that something? I, is I that the kind of kid that you were? I ended up working for the BBC as yeah, well, yeah, which exactly. is pretty, I'm sure I broke a lot of rules. Uh, that kind of thinking, is, is that what drew you to, you studied design at uni, right? Is that yeah. what took you down that path to thinking about design? I love, I love design and it's funny, I always say to people when they're going, what's your passion? And I say, when you go to a bookstore, which department do you go to? And I always go to the design corner and sit there for hours looking at design. I think design's a beautiful thing. I'm dyslexic, cannot piece a sentence together, sometimes struggle with speech, which is funny, I make up words. But for me, design's about laying information out that's really clear for people to understand and you can communicate. So design was a really good kind of skill, but then I took it into broadcast and I took it into different areas. That was the one skill that I thought I can order things, complicated things and put them down onto paper. And then obviously desktop publishing happened and design and photography. But I, I, yeah, design for me was just something that was a great grounding. But I, yeah, my moral compass kind of, then I got the better of me. I wanted to see if I could actually do things that would make things a bit better for people i'm probably i'm a really highly sensitive person and i know you you coach harry and he he gets really upset sometimes about injustice oh the other team's cheating and i'm going oh it doesn't matter harry and i see you going doesn't matter harry it's just a game but he probably has what i have which is really quite sensitive to things in the world and i just go how can i how can i make that a bit better and maybe there's a lot of naivety in my head in all honesty i sometimes think i can do more than i can but that's kind of good in a way because if you knew what you were up against, you'd never even try. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, so many times people don't do things because they think, no, I couldn't do it. I think it's a great thing to be able to, you know, get past that and maybe think that you could do more than you can. And actually maybe you, you know, maybe that Margaret Mead, you know, um, that famous Margaret Mead quote that, you know, um, the only people have ever – do you know the quote? I don't know it. Uh, I'm going to have to dig that up and put it in the show notes after this. It's such a great line and it really kind of talks to this. But I want to go back to a comment that you just made a second ago. You were talking about design and um, having trouble with some forms of communication was stepping into the design because I can see that so much of what you did after that was about media and about communications and I think storytelling and a really – amazing grasp for storytelling is something that I can see going through all your stuff since then was going down that path to design you know about being able to communicate things in a way that you know 
um, came naturally to you. Yeah, because I can't write a sentence. It's funny. I, Joss can see when I'm getting upset because I, my face, my demeanour changes when I'm trying to write a paragraph of copy. And I didn't realise I was dyslexic till probably five, six years ago. So imagine going through school, going through everything and actually not physically, un, not just could not compute what words were. And I'd have to almost wake up every day and reteach myself the. I'd wake up and go, the is spelled T-H-A. And it's not, it's spelled T-H-E, right? So for design, it's a good, it's a good, pick up I think for me I could actually lay things out that made sense to me and they made sense to other people when I did my design work they're like okay that's quite nice I get that that's attractive that's beautiful that's simple I understand what you're trying to say for me yeah I could design things and put them down that people understood it if I try to write it not a chance they no chance I just cannot put stuff down you know it gets frustrating but bizarrely being a creative director in advertising I could critique other people's work and tell them very quickly that they haven't got to the point and I could restructure things I just can't put it down from scratch it's incredible to see how that's translated to fantastic and in some ways incredibly advanced kind of visual communications but also just storytelling in general and we're going to go into a bit more of that as we go on but you were in the UK at that time, you were working for the BBC, working for Getty, um, and then you decided to move to Sydney. You must have been, pre- I mean, you were in your late 20s. You yeah, must I was 25. Been, must have been a, you know, fairly established in your career by then. You've got some really good runs on the board and for some reason you decided to get up and go to Sydney. What, what was that about? In, it's funny, you, you go to uni and people will be listening to this, like you study, you study, then you're going to come out and, you know, you've got a bit of a swagger and attitude and you want to make some money because you've studied and you've studied that subject, so I want to make some money. And I I watched, I got into advertising and I just look at my boss and I was like really saddened because I was like, my God, this poor guy is just, I don't know, that's not what I want. And and I, it didn't feel right. He's a really nice guy, but, you know, just wasn't what I wanted. And I could see all the senior people around me and I was like, no, this isn't the life I want. And I was at a party and my best mate was out here in Sydney and I was in London and we just agreed we'd just go to work on Monday and quit and go to Australia next week. So I went to work and I had a right idiot boss and I said, I'm leaving them out of here. And he went, no, you're not. You haven't got the balls to do it. I said, well, I'm resigning. I rang my mate up and he said, oh, is it, are we really doing it? I said, I've already resigned. Wow, that's awesome. It's the last time anyone would have ever said that to you, Nick. You well, know, you've, you haven't got the balls to do that. Well, yeah, you know. things have changed now. But So I I rang my parents and said, I'm going to go to Australia just for a holiday. And that was it. I applied for a visa. Visa came super quick. Passport arrived. Remember lying in bed in London going, that's it. That's the envelope. It, I opened it as a visa for a year for Australia. And, and I just said goodbye to my, pet, my folks at Heathrow and hopped on a plane. And that was 25 years ago. You landed here in Sydney. You did a few a few things, and we're, we're going to go into some of the work that you did in advertising. But within a really short time, you were at Triple M doing this crazy show, The Backpackers, yes. Sunday nights, as Nick the Pom. In, God, you've done your research. In the papers every other week, you know, about it. How did that come about? So it feels like a complete – I mean, well, I was, obviously there's the pirate radio thing that happened. Well, this is but- it, yeah. So I, I was working at an agency called George Patterson Bates as a creative, and I always loved radio. And I I actually just volunteered. This is when Andrew Denton was on air. They had this group of people. It was when there was a big freak storm, big hailstorm, and they were looking for volunteers to help the SES organise tarpauling. So I went to the station, and I said, I'm happy to man the phones and all that. 
And I realised that my, this is really bad, I realised that my pass, when I tried it on the studio doors, it opened them, the light went green and I'm in. And I was like, this is cool. I could see that there was a show called Maroon and Mooney or something. They were on one station at night and I started to just tidy up the stage. The, the, the studios were a tip. So I started to clean them. So I actually became, they thought I was a cleaner. Everyone that was on air thought I was a cleaner. So for two years, I kind of cleaned offices and swept empty bins in just in the studio where it was pretty funny. And then one day I just pitched this idea. I was working at George Pats and I said to my boss, I reckon I can get Southern Cross Osteria as an account. And I said, how on earth, you don't know anyone there. I said, I reckon I can get an account. So we created this new idea and brand. So you, just, just to stop for a sec, you were working at George Pats that whole time. Whole time in the and day. And moonlighting at the Moonlighting station. as a cleaner at Triple M, unpaid. And I'd reorder all the CDs and everything, right? So uh, I I basically pitched this. I, I, I walked George Pat's management team into Southern Cross, Osterio, and we pitched an idea to the head guys, and they were so confused. Everyone was really confused, going, Nick, how do you know these people? That my ad agency was saying that. And the radio people were going, but you're the cleaner. So anyway, it was a really nice idea. And, and they said, what do you want in return? I said, I'm happy for Southern Cross Australia to become a client of George Pat's. All I want is a radio show. So anyway, fast forward, I got a radio show and ended up doing six nights a week uh, on Triple M. And it was the most insane time because I had no experience, but that was kind of the whole premise. It was this, a backpacker has broken in and taken over the airwaves. And my co-presenter was French. He didn't speak English. So over two and a half years, I taught him English on air. I mean, you just can't get, it was an absolute cluster. But like, you know, Fatty Vaughton would come to the station and he would be doing Dead Set Legends, I think was a show before. So I'd say to him, hey mate, can you become my weatherman? Yeah, right. So he'd just come in and do the weather. And I didn't realise that Fatty Vaughton was this like NRL legend. And everyone's like, how the hell? And then Larry Emder would come in and he'd, I'd say, Larry, you can I, sh- can I run this game show idea by you? And he'd be like, yeah. So he became my game show critic. And I just kind of dragged all these, I didn't know, we're like Aussie legends into this show. And they had, they were like, do you, they just thought it was quite refreshing that they didn't know who, I didn't know who they were. I'm really struggling not to burst into laughter here. I said right at the top that you've got a lot of nerve and rolling in there, having cleaned the studios for a couple of years with the whole team of the management team of this huge advertising agency and then having the nerve to negotiate your own show and do all this stuff. Where does that come from? I, mean, I guess that's the same kid who went up to the local, you know, the local garden um, centre yeah. and sold advertising against the BBC. Well, I don't know the Airways. rules. And it's funny, I, I'm, as, I'm, as I've got older, I've realised I operate in places that a lot of people don't feel comfortable about, with. So everyone likes to know the outcome of things and they have to know what's going to be, you know, I don't know the outcome of things and I just give them a bit, I just let the idea ferment and, and I work in it. I operate in, I guess, the corners of the room. Most people like to know what's going on. I operate in another zone and uh, there's a lot of failures, but I try and kind of makes life fun, right? We're only here once and I'm, you know, I'm a failed radio DJ. If you think about it, I got on air and then Nova came in and Triple M removed all their budgets to put into Today FM to fight off the new Nova radio station. And I got axed, but I had no background in in radio, so I didn't get rehired. That's so interesting because, I, you know, I, as you said, I've, I've done a bit of research coming into this. And one of the things I spotted was you were up for Newcomer of the Year back in 2003. You really have done your research. Yeah, yeah. I, I got, yeah, Best Newcomer. And, but the day, 
That was really bizarre. I went to the awards and there's John Laws, there's Alan Jones and there's Buzz Aldrin, some guy that went to the moon and he's giving out the awards. And there's me, there's like 12 of us sat in this little area at the awards and I didn't win. And that night my boss sacked me, pretty much said, ah, you're out. So there I am. I thought I've, I've got it. I've, I'm going somewhere. I'm really enjoying this, but they got rid of me. Must have been, you know, really that's just weird. all the highs and lows on one day. I mean, that yeah. working media is always that kind of range, but that's the extremes, right? Yeah, I just got let go. See ya. It was really weird. You couldn't do that now, but that's what happened. Before we move on, I want to just ask another question about your time in doing that show at Triple M because it was constantly in the media, you know, the show. And knowing you and knowing kind of the other stuff that you've been involved in, I'm I'm reading that as something that was very deliberate. It wasn't something that was happening by accident. How did you approach doing the show and media around around the show? Yeah, it's, it's a good observation. I, I think that, you know, the media is a great channel and people are looking for stories and I realise I've got... So as a creative, we would get a brief from a client in the ad agency and it would be 30 seconds and you try and cram in 30 seconds to be creative but also deliver a really clear, concise commercial message for a, for a phone client. But you try and be creative, right? Here I am. I've now got 37 hours of free airtime on, on a sometimes national radio network. When as I'm, as I'm after 10 o'clock, I'm outside ratings. No one's really checking what I'm doing. No one checked what I was doing except when the complaints came in. And so that for me was like, I've got 37 hours of creative content to fill. Six nights. So I remember we were told by management that we weren't allowed a guest because we had absolutely no effing idea of how to do radio and we, they didn't want to risk having guests. So what this is, I, I feel bad now, but we did invite some homeless people up from Bondi Junction and, and they did a quiz and they won. We gave them food and things, right? And, you know, is that the right thing to do? It was very funny at the time and I didn't realise that the editor of The Telegraph was driving home with their son and they listened in and they said, actually... It's one of the funniest things I've ever heard, but also it was done quite sensitively. So that was the Monday morning on Tuesday. We had page 11 of the newspapers, the entire page. And that's, I think, the first time that the guy that ran the network came in going, what's happening? How how come you've got a full page in the Telegraph today? And I said, I don't know, someone just rang up. So then I realised, actually, I could have planted little stories every week. And so that's what we did. We planted little stories. And so we realised quickly, we went. We were sent down to our first film premiere. I think it was for Boogie Nights. And the girl, Heather something that was the lead girl, we did the interview and we were like, as far as we're concerned, we're one show from getting sacked. So we might as well say what we think. So we did a movie critic of it to her and, and her director. And we said, look, it's not your best movie. You've made a lot of cash. What are you going to do with it? That's a big no-no when it comes to movie critics. People are like, oh, this is amazing. You're, you look beautiful. Your acting was wonderful. And, and they started laughing, going, that's brutally, really honest. I'm like, well, it's not your best film, is it? It's, it's all right. It's not your best. And so all of a sudden, the next day in the paper, it's like, you know, the backpacker guys give this brutally honest review of a film. And so then people go, well, who are these guys? And then I remember I... I used to work in, in, in TV and Bob Geldof was my boss at the time. And Bob, I did a favour for Bob once. I did some garden party invites. And as he was loading him into his car, he said, I owe you, mate. So fast forward, I was in 
7-Eleven store in Bondi Junction and I saw Bob. This was like 20 years later. And I walked up to him, I said, Bob, you owe me a favour. And he's just freaking out going, who the hell are you? And I told him the story and told him what he'd said and I told him his car he was driving and, and, and he said, this all makes sense. What can I do? What's the favour you want to cash in? And I said, you need to come and do, be a guest on my show, my first guest. So Bob came in and did the entire show. That's amazing. So then, of course, the next day... Like such a massive get for a show like that, right? So the next day, in the paper, Bob Geldof co-host show at Triple M with X. Who the hell's X? And then from that moment on, I'd ring up every management team and they'd say, who was your last guest? And I'd go, Bob Cameron Diaz. And so all of a sudden, we got all these big people on our show, but we were no one. But that's, yeah. A lot of nerve and like creative, you know, bold, nervy content, you know, just taking risks. Yeah, and <clears throat> and understanding. <coughs> sorry, water's gone down the wrong way. Understanding that people just want to be entertained in a kind of fun way, and that the papers are looking for stories. <coughs> so why would you not give them a story? And after every show, a journalist would ring and go, "What have you got for me?" And then I'd realise I could actually work with them on an idea. And say, if I do this, will you write about it? Yeah, for sure. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So they got content, we got publicity. And so, yeah, we ended up, I think I got called in by management saying, you've had more media coverage than the entire network of breakfast shows in a year. And we were just doing a crappy two-hour show on a Sunday evening. But but not but not worried about, you know, taking that, taking each show as though it's, you know, maybe almost your last, taking that risk. And I yeah. guess in some ways, you know, you look at a professional radio presenter who wants to do that for their whole career and they look at you and say you've shone bright but you're out of the job pretty quickly. But at the same time, you know, you wouldn't be you if you hadn't done that. Yeah, it's funny because I, I would – this is really bad, but it got people start to jep, try and uh, sabotage our little bit of fun and so they would at, – at, at the network, you'd load up your intro to your show into a cart number – and you'd fire it off. People started to delete our show intros and put in random things. So I remember one day I got in and I pressed the show, show start off and a load of machine gun fire happened. So it's like, and so I was like, okay, yeah, people are dicking around with us. And it just, it actually made it even better because sometimes we'd fire off a thing and it'd be something completely, all our, all our content was wrong and it just became a bit kind of, we got compared to Monty Python. I was like, you that's like a real honour, but it was just all going wrong some days, but that's what made people want to tune in. And in a way that just adds to the magic yeah. of it, right? It's like, oh, someone again has sabotaged us and it's like they really had sabotaged us. They really didn't like that we were getting a bit of, you know, bit of spotlight, but we didn't do it for that. We were just having fun. Yeah. Two years ago, Nick, you, well, it's pretty much two years, give or take, you switched on the website to start selling Good Citizens glasses where sitting in your studio there's, you know, glasses, arms around me. There's obviously a lot of demand for this. Um, the story goes that you and Harry, your eight-year-old son, were having dinner and talking about how much plastic waste was going into the oceans. And one thing led to another. Well, our Good Citizens, um, these 100% recycled plastic sunglasses, the story's been covered countless times now. The Financial Review, the Australian National Geographic, Forbes, B&T, Time Out, and just an absolute constellation of small niche publications and podcasts. You've spoken to the UN, you've met with the PM, um, you've won a stack of awards. It's 
you know, looking from this perspective, it's an incredible success story. Um, it's a cliche though for entrepreneurs to say if they, you know, if they knew what was coming, they probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but knowing what you know now about the prototyping and the fabrication mm. and all that stuff, I mean, this was, I mean, I was a spectator on this for, yeah. for a period of your journey. Was there ever a time where you just thought as a responsible parent, adult, partner, adult, that you should just walk away? that you should just let it go because it was just never going to amount to anything. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And there's, oh, it, I mean, this is a big conversation, right? Because I had this, Harry and Archie were both coming out from school and they're in, your son was in the same class, I think, at one point, And the teachers were talking about the planet and Harry was deeply saddened that the world was going to end and that all the animals were going to die. So he's not afraid of the dark. He's afraid that the world's going to end. So how do you talk to a kid like that? And the idea just kind of blossomed. It just kind of, I didn't think it would really happen, but then I actually thought, actually, there's maybe something in this and the kid's pushing Joss and I to think about this. But no, if I'd known what was lay ahead and the financial struggles, and whilst you read out that list and that sounds like it's all going swimmingly, anybody who is listening to this understands that it can change in a dime. And we're in our workshop now, right? And you can see all our cardboard boxes here and about... Five weeks ago, they were delivered outside in a carton, but it was raining. And so two and a half thousand boxes are destroyed because a courier driver decided he'd leave them outside in the rain, not actually put them under the cover. So here I am on the floor in here. This whole workshop was full of boxes trying to dry them. And and I'm like, I'm just over this, right? This is just too much. And it is, there's a lot of failure in what we're doing because we're working at the edge of manufacturing. We're working at the end of what polymers can do. But again, I didn't know there was any rules to break. So we just keep going. But, you know, whilst I'm on the floor, the phone rings, Prime Minister's office, can can you guys meet up with the PM to talk about your business and blah, blah, blah. So I, first thing I said was, I'll check my diary. Joss is like, who, you check your diary. So I, I said, I'm actually free. And so that's, an, that's a moment where, you know, I can take the kids to meet someone and they can present what they think is the future of Australia and what, where we should be going. And I feel kind of proud of that. We got beaten up to all hell by a lot of people for meeting the Prime Minister. But I think the thing that I was trying to defend was we're not just meeting the individual, we're meeting the office of the Prime Minister, we're meeting the Environment Minister. We've got a chance to stand opposite these people and talk to them about where we think we should be going. That for me is a really powerful thing because you have to work with the people that make the decisions, right? So that's a classic example of a day going really badly to actually on the turn of a dime, a little glimmer of hope that we can make Australia a, a slightly cleaner, better place and help untrash the single-use plastic problem. And, and partly that's because your business is not just about selling sunglasses, right? It's about influencing change. Yeah, massively, massively. You know, we... We're working with the government. We, we, we've just, there's lots of things going on. And when I say working, we're kind of the pain in the backside. We're just trying to say, look, this has to happen. This has to happen. And some might call it lobbying. I, I don't think we're professional lobbyists. We probably don't, I don't even know what the word really means. It just means trying to push for change. But like I'm currently working with, you know, a university in Melbourne. I'm working with UTS. And as you can see underneath the desk here, there's offcuts from every pair of glasses. So the brief to the UTS is let's transform all our waste and untrash it and turn it into all our point of sale. So when the Museum of Contemporary Art puts another order in for our glasses, 
we're going to actually make our shop fitting out of all the offcuts. That's kind of, for me, working with brilliant young minds and inspiring them to actually push the boundaries of, don't put a virgin polymer in your machine, use my waste, right? And that's what Good Citizens is about. All the stuff we've talked about today, Nick, it, you know, it's about visual communications, about storytelling, you know, about your time in the media. Obviously, you know how to craft a story. Your partner, Joss, is a PR guru as well. And you've both had some really interesting businesses together in that space. I know you're continuing to develop that. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that kind of massive coverage and, and the way that your story has kind of captured people's imaginations. But just like the radio show, I want to unpack it a little bit and get a sense for how you've how you've done it because the story with you and your sons and the way the story came about the way you've packaged it up and told that story it's so compelling and it's been like that straight out out of the posts how did you first initially approach that was it a really deliberate process of thinking about the story that's going to really grab people how did how did that no, how did that kick off in all honesty i like I don't really do much social media. Joss doesn't really do much. Uh, we're quite reserved. It's quite bizarre hearing that for me because you know me. But I don't talk about things unless they're going to happen. I don't really, I don't show my life off on social media. The kids, I don't have any. If we're at a party and someone says, oh, I'm going to put a post up on Instagram, I wouldn't let them put a picture up of Harry and Archie. I don't want them tagged. And this was pre this business. So, you know, the idea just kind of grew and, and, what we realized was we just we set up an Instagram account and we started telling people, to, you know, likes of you, we're doing this. And I started to post the real stuff that you don't see in a business. So, you know, I remember posting a picture going, I'm sat in Mintown, I'm crying, I'm, I'm over it, I'm, 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 that's it. And, and people are like, oh, aren't you meant to be showing us trendy, cool pictures of Sunnies? And I'm like, no, I'm stuck in Minto outside a mosque behind a massive semi-trailer walked out because our machine's broken and all the experts have said that's it they've had enough and 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 i just rang joss going with you know with two hundred thousand dollars and we've spent all our life savings i can't I'm, I'm giving up and so i then you know we i just started to be really honest that when you set up a business and when you do something and then harry starts to get a bit bullied at school and you're like this, this isn't what's meant to be this was just meant to be a school uh, an idea that the kids had that dad and mum can help with and see where it goes and then, you know, Harry did go on the front page of the newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, and we freaked out. We didn't. We thought it was going to be a little story inside, so we agreed to do it. And I went to the newspaper on the step, and there's Harry. He burst into tears. I remember seeing that. He burst into tears. He went up to the newspaper shop, and he burst into tears because he thought it was just a one paper, not all papers. And I got told off off my parents, you know, why is he doing this? And I said, it's because, it's, it's, you know, he's part of this. But, the, again... People start to pick up on these kids. Now they're very much pulled back, Matt. It's funny. We don't want them to be... This is it's a proper business now. And they are. They have equal voting rights. So recently we've had two brands approach us to say, we want to partner with you. And at dinner, we discuss it. We listen to the kids and they can vote yes or no. And the last two partnerships that came our way, all of us said no. Well, actually, Archie said, yeah, it's quite a lot of money. So let's say yes. Because you know what Archie's like? He's a bit of a character. So good. But... So you've got a family board of directors basically yes. on this so company. Yes, the kids voted against. Harry voted against, I voted against, Joss voted against, Archie said yes, but it was a considerable amount of money, but we said no to both of those. So they have they have a voice behind the scenes, but now 
they're not in they're, the story's really pared back Har- harry and archie do talk at schools they've done three school talks and they've got a couple booked in harry has spoke to the whole leadership team of google you know like it was about 150 people and what was lovely they invited their kids onto the call right and so all of a sudden that's kind of really cool eh? because when was the last time you went to work with mum and dad so that's Harry. I let them do things like that, but there's nothing standalone. They're not involved. They don't go in the media. It's it kind of freaked Joss and I out. And it was very, you know, you got your, your Greta Thunbergs. Our kids are normal, mate. We're normal people. We're not anything special, and we just we've removed them from from that. We don't want them to. It's not fair. They should just be kids. And they come in here. You can see the milk crates. They have to stand on to work. Harry was in here on Friday making glasses. If he doesn't want to come in on a Friday after school and make glasses, that's fine. But You'll check the little tickets in the boxes here and Harry's written in. Yeah, I saw a few Harrys around the room. by Harry, right? Yeah, and yeah. Archie's also drawn the odd symbol that shouldn't be on a card. It's pretty funny. About, you know, but that's because they're little characters and that's kind of the honesty of it all. And in, in a way, that's something you've got to negotiate all the way through, right? Like when it was just a startup that who knew what was going to happen with it, it was a really different thing to it being the going concern. Nick, we are pretty much out of time now yep. and I just want to wrap with three really quick questions that I want to throw at you. Uh, and I know I haven't given you any prep on these, but I'd love to hear your just top of the dome kind of response. First up, what's keeping you up at night right now? I get, uh, it's funny when you have a business like this, all of a sudden people start to be giving you advice and I necessarily haven't asked for it, but if you don't scale, you're going to get swallowed up by all the competition. And I'm like, well, they may have millions and millions and millions and we don't have millions and millions and millions, but we've been offered investment and I've said no at the moment because I don't want to, I have an agenda which is beyond just selling glasses and I don't want an investor to come in and once they put money in they then start to have a voice and the voice is probably very different to the outcome that we want so that keeps me up because I do worry that I've said no to a few people that maybe could have really accelerated the brand but I worry that it would be for the wrong reasons yeah okay second question who else should I be talking to? Who else is doing inspiring stuff, making things happen in this city that we that I should be talking to? It's funny, yeah, I, was chat, I listened to a podcast the other day and someone from I used to work at, you really have put me on the spot. I'm, this is straight up. I, guy I used to work with at George Pat's, he was a creative like me. He's called Matt Keon. He's using his creative thinking and skills to look at the problem of uh, in, in medicine. So, uh, oh God, not Alzheimer's, motor neurons. So he's basically taking his creative brain and going, how can I solve motor neurons disease? Well, that is such a vicious disease. Right, so doesn't get much funding, but he's he's looking like, I look at polymers. So what am I? I'm not a creative director anymore. I'm a kind of a polymer person, an engineer, a brander, I don't know, a storyteller, whatever you want to say. But I've got about 12 hats, but he's using his skills. So Matt Keon's someone I would talk to because... He's not a scientist. He's not a mathematician. He's not a data person. He's a creative mind, but he's going to, he's looked at a problem and he's working out with technology how he can help fix that problem and help the experts fix that problem. So he's blown my mind. He's someone you should speak to. I love that. Last question, and we're going to be wrapping after that. What gives you hope? Hope that 
I get emails all the time from people that I don't even know saying, I wear your glasses and I feel brilliant. Thank you. And I go, God, it takes me a minute to make a pair of glasses here. Sadly, in the minute it's taken me to, to make them, a million bottles, plastic bottles have been sold around the world. That's kind of sad, but at least I've kept one of those off the streets and out the ocean. That gives me hope when I get emails. That is such a fantastic finish. Thank you so much for that, Nick. And thanks for listening to this podcast. Let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Levinson. This was produced and hosted by me. Thanks so much to my brilliant guest today, Nick. I got a pair of Good Citizens in that initial um, crowdfunding round and literally, I mean, it, it seems like a bit of a thing that you might say, but literally every time I wear them, someone will ask me about them. They'll say, you know, like, where'd you get them? Um, you know, how do I find some? And they will literally write down the details in their phone before they move on. So it's it's that kind of product. So if you haven't heard about them, check them out. And they're still working. They're brilliant. You've absolutely hound, you've smashed them to bits and they're still going strong. Is that about, right? three, is that about three years? Just under, just under, I think. And they're still, they're in perfect nick, mate. Brilliant. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe. That's it for this week.